Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. This is part two of our interview with Anna Sale. Anna is the host of the podcast Death, Sex, and Money and the author of the new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things. If you've missed part one, go back and listen to that one first. Now, you can win a copy of her new book for free by signing up for our monthly newsletter. Once a month, you'll get tips and insights and reviews of episodes you might have missed. Sign up by sending your email address to bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. You'll find that address in the show notes, bittersweetlifepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send us your address through social media. Just look for the Bittersweet Life Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also win a copy of that book by donating to the show. Help us pay for the web hosting fees, the batteries for our recorders, even the postage to send books to people all over the world. All things that it takes to keep an independent show going. This show continues because of your support. Nothing else. There are links to donate in the show notes. Or visit thebittersweetlife.net. Okay, now in part one, we covered death and sex. Now we move on to money. Here we go. All right, let's do another big jump to money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This this is book is going to be a hard book tour for you, I feel. <laughs> There's a lot of deep stuff in here. All right. What What is money vigilance and how has it affected you? Okay. So money vigilance is, is one of these four scripts around money. I found this really useful. This is from a financial psychologist named Brad Klotz. And one of the things I wanted to explore in the money chapter is like money is hard to talk about because we have trouble talking about dollar amounts, like money, just money. And we also don't really have words for the very intricate kind of like behaviors and value systems we each have developed um, through our growing up and through what we've gone through around money. And so I wanted to sort of tease out some of that stuff that we all have these inherited kind of value systems around money around like interdependence versus like independence and stability versus like risk and comfort, you know, all these big things that, that differ between people. And then we also have our own sort of personalities. So money vigilance is one of these four scripts. And, and it is something that I very much relate to. And it's this idea that money is something to be kind of like constantly managed and watched. And if you are doing that, then you are being responsible. It's the way that you feel in control and safe is to be very focused on money. And the way that that manifests for me is I'm stingy. (laughs) (laughs) Spending money is really scary for me. And when spending money is really scary for you, like it has a lot of emotional consequences because you have to spend money to live life. So it's something that I have had to sort of like continually sort of acknowledge and work through. Yes, it's the image of... A friend has said about me once, it's the image of being a dragon on your pile of coins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where you just say, I-, I need to save this here. I know I have enough to go do that, but I'm not going to do that right now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to hold this money here yeah. and watch over it. And the holding in itself is what, okay, if I'm holding it, then I'm safe. Um, and what I fail to sometimes think about is like, 
what am I not allowing to happen because I'm just like holding, trying to hold this so close? First of all, I'm not sharing. (laughs) I'm not being as generous a person as I want to be. And I also am not like using money to create things. Like maybe it's like an opportunity or to like an experience or even just like a certain level of comfort. There are really important reasons to not just hoard money. What have you discovered about how money, money vigilance, plus the other types of ways people deal with it, how is it shaping our self-worth? That's another reason that money can be hard to talk about is like, because if you grew up in a, in an environment where not needing help and being self-sufficient was a real value, if you're not able to do that, whether from as a consequence of your own actions or as a consequence of a global pandemic, for example, it can be a huge blow to your self-worth. And quite literally, like, I can't provide. And my identity is attached to providing. Who am I? I'm worthless. And so talking about money is not going to, like, make those dynamics, like, more controllable. You can't control whether you're going to need help if you are someone who has had your financial situation hurt by a global pandemic. But it, it just sort of just gives you words and and names for like, oh, I'm feeling this because I grew up thinking to need help, to need financial help is is shameful. And it shows that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Once you name that and you can say like, huh, there's there's actually other models. There's other other like social models and family models where there's a real sense of like, we're in this together. And I write about a couple actually who who really run into that two men who've been who are married one of whom is is from the southern US and had the experience of his family lose their business and and go bankrupt right as he was leaving home and so he's always had a real sense of like I need to take care of my own self because I can't rely on my family financially and his husband his family immigrated from Vietnam and his family has always had this sense of um, we share money between ourselves his parents were members of like savings club where we're not just family members but members of of their community shared money and lifted each other up and and they had this huge conflict because the partner who who's from the Vietnamese family shared he invested in a rental property with his brother and didn't tell his husband <laughs> and his husband thought it was a huge betrayal which, you know, he should have told him, but he also just didn't understand it. What is it? Like, why would you think that that would be something that you're supposed to do? Like, we are the unit, you and me. And the husband who did invest with his brother was like, this is what you do in family. My brother came to me and said, if you invest this, then I'll be able to invest in this and we're all both going to make money. Like, that that's how, that's what family does. Like once you name these different value systems around money, you can compare and be like, huh, well, which one do we want to have work in our relationship? Katie here, breaking in for a moment to tell you about a card game that I really love. It's called Love Letter. In Love Letter, a princess is looking for a partner and confidant to help her with her royal duties when she assumes the throne. Your job is to prove your worth and gain her trust by enlisting allies, friends and family of the princess to carry a letter of intent to her. Love Letter is simple to play. You draw a card and play a card on your turn and use the character's ability on the card to stay in the round and get your letter closer to the princess. It's a great game for two to six players, and it's quick, it plays in about 20 minutes, and it fits in your pocket, so you can take it anywhere. On trips to the park, to your parents' house, 
Love Letter is appropriate for ages 10 and up, and it's available for $11.99 through Z-Man Games. You can find it at Target, your local game store, or directly through Z-Man Games' web store. I really love this game. Derek and I played it a lot during lockdown. Back to the show. Well, we've already touched on family a little bit, but just since we have to throw something in that category before we're done, um, what would you say, what have you learned about how to bring up something that could unsettle a family? How do you bring something like that to the table? I mean, I think it's about, it's one person I talked to, the filmmaker Desiree Akavan, she came out to her family, came out to her parents, and they had a really hard time with it. And I said, do you have any advice about like when and how to 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 present that kind of information um, when you know it's going to be unsettling to your family? And she was like, just there's not there's never a good time when you are presenting information that's going to disrupt the predominant family narrative. It's going to be disruptive. If you have something you need to share with your family that's going to that you think will be disruptive, it's it's like being clear about like why you need to tell them. And then taking care to to tell them in the in as sort of as we were talking about an environment where where they're most likely to be able to hear you, and also not expecting you know seeing where your responsibility ends like you're not in charge of making them feel okay about whatever you have to share with them. In Desiree's case, it was you know she was telling them who she loved and who she is, and they initially had a really hard time with that. But they came around, it took some time, and in family, hopefully you have that time to just sort of let let things sort of evolve together. But the alternative for her, and, and maybe for you, if you have hard information to share with the family, is like just holding it back from them. Sometimes that's the choice that you'll make if it's if it's not a safe environment for you to share information. But sometimes if, if you want to have an, a relationship where you feel known, and seen by your family, then, then that's the thing. Then you're like, well, then I have to tell them this information that will be disruptive. All right. And finally, identity. So you talk to Ann Poe, who's a Lakota woman who spends much of her time educating white tourists and native children. Tell us a little bit about her first, and then I'll ask you a question about her. Yeah, I met her. I was working on this chapter, and I was like, what? what do I have to say about this? Like, like this is such a huge thing. Like, it's so many, I'm dealing with it interpersonally. Every institution in America is dealing with it. Like, how do you talk about identity and power and racism and belonging? How do we do this? And as I was sort of thinking about that, I I was in Cody, Wyoming, where I spend summers because my husband does field work around Yellowstone. And every summer, they have a powwow at the museum in town. And tribes from all over gather for dancing competitions and it's also sort of something that tourists who are visiting the museum who've been through Yellowstone they stop and they they watch the powwow and I met Ampo because she there was a teepee set up on the grounds of the powwow with like sort of the open flap and it was her job to just sit in the teepee and answer people's questions tourist questions um it was white people who were going in with with questions and i went in and i was like listening to her and it just was like really fun because (laughs) she was both really really direct and also 
patient in a certain way. And I just was like, what? Why is she doing this? Um, what, one example was like there was a, a family of, of white German tourists who kind of came in and one of them said something to the effect of like, oh, I just so respect your people. You know, you take care of the earth and, and you have such a close relationship to nature. And and Ampo said back to them, like, actually, I think that's pretty stereotypical. Like some of us litter. <laughs> you know? it was just like, she was just like, I want to tell you about the very diverse, different cultural histories of indigenous people in the United States. And I also want you to see our humanness, you know, in our, in our everydayness. So doing both. And I later called her up and said, you know, can I talk to you about why you're doing this? And she described both kind of this like feeling of responsibility that she she recognizes that there are a lot of people who don't know anything about Native Americans and that erasure is dangerous and has consequences and has policy consequences. And it's tiresome for her and it takes study because she doesn't know the history of all Native Americans in the United States, like she's had to study to be able to say, like, here's my family's history, here's, you know, these different regional histories, here are these different tribal histories. But she does it uh, because she feels that responsibility. And she also recognizes that it's work. And she has really intimate experiences then of like, people not being able to listen to her, you know, they can listen to a point, they can listen to her as a sort of like, spectacle. But when it gets to, you know, uh, history of treaties being violated, or, you know, what the consequences are for how land looks in the Western US right now, like people can only hear her to a point, and then they want to kind of get separate white people in particular separate and and be defensive. And so I wanted to just talk with her around all of that stuff. What is it like for her emotionally to sort of take on that labor? And just like the main message she said is, I feel I just want people to listen to me. If you are not an indigenous person, I want you to listen. If you're asking me questions, then I need you to listen. And at the same time, a whole different project she has is she lives on the Wind River Rivers Reservation in Wyoming, and she works in a school. And she feels also this incredible responsibility to talk to the kids who are of various tribal backgrounds about Native history and Native identity and what has happened to their communities before they were born and how to understand the ways they are treated by people, how to understand the statistics about, you know, sexual assault and police violence against Native men, like all of these things she talks very directly to them about. And then she also will say, you need to know that you are here. This is a quote that just sticks with me. You are here because someone hid, because someone ran faster, because someone survived, because they tried they tried to get rid of us. And you are here because someone survived. So honor that history. I just loved spending time with her. I learned a lot about just how much social energy and skillfulness and study it takes to be really committed to having these identity conversations. And it made me as a white person, like, oh, I need to, when I am having a conversation about identity, as someone who has felt 
by and large in my life, a, a sense of belonging in the United States, a sense of being seen, a sense of being seen as an individual. My role in identity conversations when I'm talking to someone who has not had that experience is to sit back and listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She really stands out in your book for her directness and also her warmth, mm-hmm. I feel, both toward the white tourist and toward the students that she's being so blatant and direct with about the dangers they face in their lives. Yeah. And you also see the way she uses her sense of humor. It's a tactic also. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm going to use humor so that then you'll keep listening to me. It's a studied practice because she's had to do it a lot. Yeah. Fascinating. Would you say that it's important to find a resolution when you're having hard conversations in any of these categories? I think it's like, let yourself off the hook for that. The purpose of a hard conversation, like we're talking about a lot of big things that are all very different. But if you go into a conversation saying like, I want to understand something with this person that I'm talking to that I didn't before we talked, or I, I need them to hear something from me that I haven't said to them before, like that's, that's what I need. And not have the expectation that you're going to tie it up neatly in, in one sitting. If you go in with that expectation, it's, it's easier. Because you're not going to resolve a really hard thing in one conversation. You're going to feel unsettled and like you've disturbed the status quo. And there's a real utility to disturbing the status quo. The reason you're having the hard conversation is because something has gone unsaid. And now you're saying it. You're naming something or you're hearing something that you haven't heard before. It's not easy emotionally to accept that kind of discomfort. But that's the that's the thing that takes practice. When you recognize that feeling of not having a resolution as like part of the process instead of like something wrong with the process, it's easier. And and I learned this from a woman who is a, she's a therapist in the East Bay and her name is Karina Montag and she runs anti-racism workshops and restorative justice workshops. And she told me that, that when she starts working with a group, something she says to them is expect and accept a lack of closure. We're going into some hard conversations and expect and accept a lack of closure. That doesn't make it easy, but it that changes the frame of what the objective is. We're churning some stuff up and we're churning some stuff up for a reason because we're doing this work together, but you're not going to feel like everything's resolved at the end. Well, and you also say that sometimes when in the midst of these hard conversations, you need to realize when it's time to stop poking the wound, so to speak, is how you put it. But how do you get past those wounds? You know, if a person is deeply wounded in some way and you always stop the conversation there, how do you have the hard conversations you need to have? Well, I think the the poking the wound, I more mean that's in the context of a conversation where, say it's it's one thing you keep kind of trying to shift in a relationship and you're trying to talk about it again and you're trying to talk about it again and you keep ending up in the same place sometimes like at the end of my first marriage it was about recognizing like oh these conversations feel hard and unresolved because we're hitting on something that is hard and sad and we're wanting it like we wish we could get in in a different place when we talk about this but the fact is 
you want this thing and I want this thing. We don't want the same things anymore. And it felt like if we just keep talking about it and if we keep saying we're going to just keep working on this and keep working on this, sometimes it's sometimes the hard information you learn through a hard conversation, that means the hard conversation has done its job. Sometimes the end of a hard conversation is like, oh, this is something that we're not ever going to agree on. We're always going to disagree about this. And if it's, if it's say it's like a huge political difference that you have with someone in your life, then your, your set of questions for yourself are, can I still have a relationship with this person? Can I have a relationship where we don't talk directly about that stuff, but we focus on the things that we do share in common? Or sometimes in, a, in the context of a romantic relationship, it's about, okay, we, our relationship has run its course. And that's what we're learning from continually sort of going back over this and going back over this. And I think that that you can give yourself permission to say, like, I can stop talking now. I've tried. We've had the hard conversation. We tried to resolve this. And as we talked about it, we realized there was no resolving it. Anna Sale is the creator and host of Death, Sex, and Money, and she's the author of the new book, Let's Talk About Hard Things. So many great hard things in this book and ideas of how to talk about them. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thank you.